Last week we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, attempting to answer those very important questions of who are we, where did we come from. And as, as you go through Genesis 1 and 2 and then, and then make your way into Genesis chapter 3, it seems that everything is well, isn't it? It seems like everything's perfect. I mean, we, we tend to think of the Garden of Eden as, as a wonderful, perfect place. It's paradise, right? And, in, and, and that's a good way to think about it because look at Genesis 1, verse 31. Genesis 1, 31. It says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God didn't create anything evil here, did he, in Genesis 1 and 2? No, he didn't create anything evil. God is not the author of sin or anything evil. Uh, it was all very good in the beginning. But then suddenly we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 opens up a, a totally different room for us, if you will. And, and here we have, right at the very beginning... And in fact, my Bible translation, the third, look at the third word. My Bible, it says serpent. Why is it we have, we don't tend to think very good of serpents or snakes? <laughs> well, a lot of it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. I think it, at least that's how I view it anyway. And, and here, this serpent is, is clearly evil. How do we know that? Because in verse 1, he's... He's calling into question God's words, or God's word. Now, verse one, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? So he's calling into question God's word here. He's clearly evil. He's devious, he's deceitful, he's destructive. And God said in Genesis 2, verse 17, The day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That is what God said. But the serpent says in verse 4, he doesn't say exactly the same thing. He's calling into question God's word. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You, sh- you will not surely die. Is that what God said? No. That's not what God said. God knows here that well, he's, 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 he's questioning God. Jesus, by the way, says that this, this, and this is Satan, by the way. Jesus said that he is a liar and a murderer. Satan is the one who, who is controlling the serpent here in this. In John 8, verse 44, it says that he, that is Satan, I, I put it up on the screen, didn't I? John 8, 44. Oh, sorry. John 8, 44, it says that he was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So who is this serpent? Well, the fullest answer is really given in Revelation 12, verse 9, which says this. Again, Revelation 12, verse 9. Next slide. Next one. Oh, did I not put it up there? Okay, I guess I didn't put it up there. Anyway, Revelation 12, 9 says that the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the serpent in the Garden of Eden is clearly Satan. Jesus calls him in John chapter 12, the ruler of this world. 
The Pharisees called Satan Beelzebul, the prince of demons in Matthew 12. The Apostle Paul called him the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. So you get an idea, some of these, these titles and phrases given to Satan, you get an idea of who he is and, what, and his activity and what he's doing, don't you? That's the one we're meeting here in Genesis chapter 3. He's already evil. He's already a deceiver. He's already a liar. He's already a murderer. And so when he appears in the Garden of Eden, that's his character. That, that's who he is. In verse 15, God speaks to the serpent and he pronounced judgment upon him. Look at verse 15, Genesis 3, 15. <clears throat> this was after he tempted Adam and Eve. It says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice, <clears throat> if you're not really observing carefully and looking at the passage carefully here, it, it appears that at first look like there's a warfare between two offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring. But in the next words, something different is said. It says, he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. Who's the he? It's the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring will bruise the head. Well, who, who's, who is your there? Who's, whose head? And the answer is the serpent himself. Satan's head. Not Satan's offspring. The woman's offspring who is, is going to bruise and crush the head of Satan. So how is Satan going to be crushed? Well, you have to partly read the end. You partly have to read the Gospels to figure this out. But God says that there is a day coming when Satan is going to be ultimately defeated. He's going to be removed from the earth. The offspring of this woman is going to crush Satan. And that decisive blow was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, who of course is Jesus Christ. The perfect offspring of the woman is Jesus Christ. He went, and, and he crushed Satan when he died on the cross. Satan thought he was accomplishing his own purposes, but in the end... He was only accomplishing God's purposes. The greatest sin that was ever, ever done was by Satan, by murdering God's son, accomplished God's purposes. And this is one of the reasons here, by the way, why the eternal son of God had to become a man, because he had to be the offspring of a woman. And by the way, notice it doesn't say offspring of a man. Jesus never inherited an earthly father's sin nature. He was perfect. He was the offspring of a woman who, of course, was a virgin. And he did this so he could crush Satan. Look at Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15 here, because these describe what God did for those who are trusting in his son. When, when Jesus died on the cross, here's what he did. It says, I'll put it in brackets here because it's not in the Bible, but this is what it's talking about. It says, the record of debt that stood against us, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now the in him is Jesus. God triumphed over these authorities, Satan and the demons, uh, through Jesus Christ. And so when Christ died for our sins, it, it's literally saying that Satan was disarmed. He was defeated. And the one eternally destructive weapon that he has was stripped from his hands. 
He was left defenseless. It's a bit like taking the teeth out of a dog. <laughs> you know, dog can't really hurt you without his teeth, right? It can bark at you and it can be obnoxious, but it's, it can't bite you. That's kind of like what happened to Satan. God took the teeth right out of Satan, takes the weapons right out of his hand. Sometimes you wonder if Satan knows that, though, don't you? He still, he still barks. He's still the accuser of the brethren. When Christ died, that, the, the accusations that Satan continually brings against the brethren, well, they, they just become worthless. All those who entrust themselves to Christ, the Bible says, are never going to perish. We have eternal life. It's not temporary life. It's eternal life. So Satan can't separate believers from the love of God in Christ, Romans says. Romans 8. Look, Read the, the end of Romans 8. It's a wonderful passage. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, the question that cries out for an answer here is, as we think about this, well, okay, Satan's going to be crushed. Well, uh, where, where did Satan come from? Where did Satan come from? Why does God tolerate his uh, sinful activity, his evil activity? Why does God tolerate it? In Genesis, he just appears. We, you know, the Bible doesn't tell you everything, does it? We have a lot of questions that are unanswered. He just appears on the scene. Here, between the perfection that's described in Genesis 1, which says, behold, it was very good, and then we have the appearance of this evil in Genesis 3. He just, he just appears on the scene. Well, obviously something happened. There's all kinds of theories and ideas on that, but I'm not going to try to conjecture at the moment here, but the, the good creation was obviously corrupted, wasn't it? Sin entered the world there in Genesis 3. Uh, the, the books, by the way, of, of Jude and Second Peter really help give us some clues to what happened. Again, compare Scripture with Scripture. You'll get, you'll get some ideas of what's going on here. I'll put them up here on the screen for you. Jude 1, verse 6 says, The angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So not all the demons are, are roaming free on this earth at the moment, obviously. God says some of them are under chains. They're in bondage, if you will. They're, they're in prison. They're not free to do what, what they want to do. Well, another, another one, uh, 2 Peter 2, 4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So we get an idea from here. It seems that their sin was obviously insurrection. You, you can read about Satan's insurrection in places like Isaiah 14 and also in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Satan had an eye problem. And by eye problem, I don't mean the physical eyes you see with. You, you read particularly Isaiah chapter 14. He's constantly saying, I will, I will, I will make myself, you know, like the Most High. You know, he had an eye problem. He, he was in insurrection. Satan and these demons desired more power and more authority than God had given to them. That's called insurrection. And so Satan originates here as a created angel. He's originally called Lucifer, the Bible says. He, uh, he was there guarding uh, the, the throne of God. And uh, the Bible says that other angels rebelled 
against God as well and followed Satan, and God cast them out of heaven. So they rejected God as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-satisfying king of the universe. They set a course of, of their own self-exaltation against God. They, 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 didn't, they didn't want to subordinate themselves to the king of kings and lord of lords. As you read that, you, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of strange, don't you? They don't want to uh, be sent by God to serve other people. They don't want to serve God. They, they themselves want to do their own thing. They want to have authority over themselves. They want to exalt themselves above God. That seems kind of strange. That leads me to the next question. Why did Satan rebel against God? Why did Satan rebel against God? I mean, how, how could this happen? You think about it. There, there's not an easy answer here, really. In fact, the ultimate biblical answer is, is probably going to create more questions. As you, you think about this, you, you, try to, you try to answer that question, it's going to lead you probably to more questions. It seems that in this age, the Bible says, uh, Corinthians talks about, we know in part. Some people find help in saying, well, all sorts of weird ideas are out there. But some people say, well, the angels, they had a free will and God couldn't, he couldn't exert enough influence to keep them uh, worshiping him and him alone. Well, some people think that. I don't actually find that idea helpful at all, frankly. God couldn't exert enough influence to keep them in their place? <laughs> it doesn't really answer, if you believe that, by the way, it doesn't answer the question, why would perfectly holy angels who are in God's infinitely beautiful presence, use their free will to suddenly hate God. Why would they do that? You think about that one, your, your brain's going to catch on fire. I mean, really, this idea that God was helpless to prevent this rebellion taking place, it, well, it's just it's a silly idea. It's an unbiblical idea, frankly. It's not a solution to the problem at all. It doesn't account for why perfect holy beings would use their wills to despise what they were actually created to worship. And it doesn't fit with what the rest of the Bible says either. We're going we're to talk a few moments here about what the Bible actually says about this. So the answer to the origin of Satan's sin is found by actually reading your entire Bible. You're not going to, you can't like necessarily go to one, just one verse in the Bible and say, okay, that answers all my questions. That's not going to happen. So what I want to do is is kind of do something, um, some call like a biblical theology. Biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology. You start at the beginning, you kind of work your way through the Bible and you you can get an idea of progressive revelation. Because God doesn't reveal everything, you know, obviously in Genesis 1, does he? God has progressively revealed himself in his ways throughout Scripture. So I, I want to kind of take that approach and, and, and uh, run with that. But let's think about this. How does God relate to Satan's will? Is God helpless before the will of evil powers? Is he totally helpless? 
Or is God presented throughout the Bible as having some kind of a right and a, and a power to actually restrain Satan anytime he pleases? And if so, why doesn't he just destroy Satan? Do, do you see the problem here? Okay. Satan's still alive, isn't he? He is alive and well on planet Earth. He is not destroyed yet. Okay? So, but if you start thinking, some people try to think through this logically. They'll say, well, okay, I believe in a good and a loving God. Satan's still around here doing evil. That, that means that God's not in control. Do you, do you see how people can arrive to that conclusion? It's a faulty conclusion. But you can see how people get there. Anyway, I'm going to show you that, how that's a faulty conclusion. Let's look at some Bible passages, and we're going to see what we find here. And the next question is this. Is God in control of Satan? Is God in control of Satan? Number one, uh, yes, Satan is called the ruler of this world. The Bible says that. But in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, here's what the Bible says. Daniel 4, 17, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Notice, God bestows it on whom he wishes. And then in Psalm 33, verse 10, it says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So yes, we, we, we see in the Bible, Satan is the ruler of this world, but the ultimate ruler is God. He's the ultimate ruler. Number two, though the unclean spirits are everywhere, and by unclean spirits, the Bible's referring to those demons, and yes, they're, they're deceitful, uh, deceptive, sly, murderous, evil. I want you to see here in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus Christ has authority over them. Read, read the Gospels. You'll see that Jesus Christ has authority over the demons. He can tell them to do uh, what he wants them to do, and they obey. Mark 1, verse 27 is one of these passages. It says that he, that's Jesus Christ, commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So when Christ commands the devil, the devil obeys. The devil knows who's in charge. Number three. <clears throat> You've probably heard that verse in the Bible. It talks about Satan is the roaring lion. He walks about this earth seeking whom he may devour. Yes, the Bible says that, of course. Peter also said this. The same one who said that said in 1 Peter chapter 5, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, notice the word suffering. Suffering is the way Satan is trying to devour the saints. Uh, Satan is, <laughs> he doesn't love us. Let me put it that way. He doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. He cares about himself. And he'll use suffering to attack us and to destroy people. So it's his way to try to devour the saints. But Peter says in chapter 3, verse 17, look, here's what he says. It is better... If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather for doing what is wrong. Did, did you hear what he said there? Did you hear that? The Bible actually says, if God 
will it so. You know what that means? It means that this suffering or the, the, the jaws of the lion, so to speak, are opened and closed only according to God's will. Yes, Satan roams about this earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he cannot devour anybody without God's permission. Number four, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. That's true. Jesus uh, said that, in fact. (laughs) But has he taken the gift of life out of the hand of God? Is Is Satan the one who's in control of the gift of life? No. In fact, look what Deuteronomy 32, 39 says. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me, God says here. It is I who put to death and give life. Did you see that? God says it's him who puts to death, and it is him who gives life. God does that, not Satan. God says it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. James says a similar idea. Uh, James 4, verse 15, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So everything we do is is Lord willing. We we need to learn that lesson. Everything is Lord willing. So it does not say, by the way, if Satan wills. It doesn't say if I will. It says if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So the Lord is, is giving. The Lord is the one who takes away. Job even declared that after he lost everything. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Number five, when Satan aims to destroy Job, and Satan tried to prove that God was not Job's greatest treasure, could Satan do anything without God's permission? No. Satan had to go get God's permission to do anything to Job. He had to get God's permission before he attacked his possessions. He had to get God's permission before he destroyed Job's children. He had to go back and get God's permission to to attack Job's body. He had to have God's permission for everything he did. And in Job 1 verse 12, God said this, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. You understand how significant the book of Job is? It shows us who's in charge. It shows us who has the power. God told Satan, Yes, you have my permission to attack Job and his possessions, but God, but God set boundaries several times there. He set boundaries, and Satan could not go beyond those boundaries. Number six, Satan is the great tempter. Satan is a great tempter. He wants us to sin. He doesn't want us to love God. And Luke tells us, by the way, that Satan was behind Peter's three denials. This is very interesting. In, uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, Satan comes along. He, he, uh, he tempts Simon Peter to deny Jesus Christ. But he, again, he had to go and get God's permission to do it. I want you, in case you don't believe me, here's what the Bible says. Jesus says to Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew about Satan asking permission. Satan, or Jesus knew what was going to happen to Peter, and Jesus Christ knew that, that Peter would repent of his sin and come back. It, it's all right there. So Satan couldn't do what he wished with Peter without God's permission. And when he had it, God, again, sets the boundaries here. It says, you will not destroy Peter. You will not destroy Peter. God set the boundary. Yes, Peter stumbled. Somehow that was all part of God's plan. That was a part of God's permission there. And Jesus even said, when, not if, he says, when you have turned again, not if, Jesus said, you're going to go strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is in control here. Jesus is in control, not Satan. Jesus is the one who has the upper hand here. Jesus is the one in charge. Satan is allowed to only go so far, and he can't go any farther. It's a bit like the dog on the chain. Don't you? Uh, maybe, maybe you're not like me. Sometimes it's kind of fun teasing dogs on chains. You ever done that? Because you know that that dog can't go any farther than the chain. So you stand, you know, just just a little bit beyond the dog's reach, and you make fun of the dog, you know. You can even put some food out here just beyond the dog's reach or whatever, you know, and the, and the dog runs and, ha-ha, <laughs> you, can't, you can't get me. It's, it's kind of like Satan, you know. He, he's on the chain. He can only go as far as God wants. God lets out that chain, and he can't go any farther than that. Number seven, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And some people look at that verse there and say, see, Satan's in control. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. You know, I wring my hands and I can't, I, I, you know, it's hopeless. But is this power to blind people an ultimate power here? Is it an ultimate power? Yes, he has some power, but is it ultimate? Can God overcome this power? Can God resist and, and make void and, and empty that power? Of course he can. Read the context. Read the context. In fact, two verses later, in the same context, here's what God said. God said this, let light shine out of darkness. Or sorry, God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, yes, Satan is able to blind people, but this blinding effect of Satan is, is actually giving way to the greater power, which is God's light. That's why the verse says, let there be light. Can darkness prohibit the light? No. If this room was dark at nighttime, one little candle, you could see in here, couldn't you? The darkness cannot stop the light. Well, then the next logical question that we might be asking is this. Well, does God control Satan's every move? Okay, hopefully it's pretty clear based on Scripture that God is in control. God's the one in charge, but what about every move that Satan makes? Is God in charge of everything that Satan does? Well, my conclusion 
from the Bible, if you look at the Bible from cover to cover, is that the Bible is presenting God as governing Satan and the demons. That's what the Bible shows. He has the right and the power to restrain them anytime he pleases. We've seen some of these passages that prove that point. And so here's my conclusion. I'm concluding God has permitted Satan's fall. Notice I said permitted. God didn't cause it. He's not the cause of sin. Uh, That's heresy, anybody who believes that. He's permitted Satan's fall, not because he was helpless to stop it. God could have stopped Satan's fall, but he did it because he had a purpose in Satan's fall. Now you say, well, I don't understand God's purpose in Satan's fall. Well, that's fine. You don't have to understand everything, do you? Do you, uh, do you understand everything about gravity? You know, the earth rotating and everything that takes place on this planet? Before you walk out your door, and do you scratch your head and think, okay, is my body going to stay on the earth or am I going to fly in the outer space? No, of course you don't understand everything about gravity. There's a lot of things you don't fully understand, but we believe them. We trust that we, we can walk on this earth even though we're on the bottom of it, aren't we? You know, New Zealand's down here in the bottom of the earth, right? But we don't fall off it. Why? Because of gravity. We don't understand all that, but it's an amazing thing that God has done, hasn't he? And so God has done this. He has permitted it. It's, it's accomplishing his purposes. And God hasn't taken off his guard. His, his permissions are something that are always purposeful. And so if he chooses to permit something, he's obviously got a good reason for it. You say, why does God do what he does? Well, it's always the same two reasons. God does everything that he does for his glory and your good. His glory and your good. So if you're ever scratching your head wondering why, God's glory and your good. Two answers for everything. God has an infinitely wise reason for what he does. And so how the the sin arises in, in, in Satan's heart, well, we don't know that. Okay, How does that sin arise? Well, it obviously didn't come from God. God's not the creator of sin. God hasn't told us, so we just don't know. So you just need to leave it there, okay? But what we do know is that God is sovereign over Satan, don't we? We know that for sure. Therefore, Satan's will doesn't move without God's permission. We know that much. And so every move of Satan is is a part of God's purposes, is a part of God's plan. Well, this is true in, in such a way that we must remember that God never sins while doing this. Okay, don't forget that. God never sins while allowing these things to take place because God is infinite holy. He's infinitely mighty. Satan is evil, and Satan is, is under God's governing authority and power. So why does God not destroy Satan then? You ever wondered that? If God is almighty... If God is all-powerful and he's greater than Satan, why is Satan still alive? Why is he still alive? Why does God not simply wipe Satan out? He has the right to do it. He has the power to do this. And in fact, we know what's going to happen in the end, don't we? If you've read Revelation 20, verse 10, it says that he's going to do it someday. He's going to throw Satan into the lake of fire, and that's his final doom. We know that's what's going to happen. So why does God not do it now? 
Why didn't he just cast him in the lake of fire the day he rebelled? Why just let him rampage throughout human history, accomplishing the evil that he's doing? Why? It's a good question, isn't it? I hope you understand the significance of that question. Well, the ultimate answer is really found in Colossians 1, verse 16, which says that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Some of you might be thinking, I don't see the connection here. (laughs) Why does God not destroy Satan? Why is he rampaging throughout human history? What does Colossians 1.16 have to do with it? Well, Jesus Christ is the one who created, originally Lucifer, by the way, not Satan. He's not the author of sin. And notice it says it's not just through Christ that everything was created, but everything was created for Christ. So that gives you the purpose. Not just how it happened, but it gives you the purpose. So Jesus Christ is obviously going to be exalted and honored in the end here because he defeats Satan. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. But in the process, we see a God who is long-suffering. We see a God who is patient. We see a God who is humble. He, he, he suffered under Satan, even though he was greater than Satan. <laughs> he died He had the power to defeat Satan, but he allowed Satan to to tempt him and to to do what he did so that he could crush Satan. So the glory of Christ really reaches its its climax, its, its pinnacle, its apex in the obedient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus triumphed over the devil on the cross, we see the the climax, if you will. Jesus even said that in John chapter 13. He says, now in my final hour is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when he was talking about the thorn in the flesh, which Satan's thorn in Paul's side, 2 Corinthians 12 said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Whose power? God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Do you see the point? So why does God not destroy Satan now? Because Satan is accomplishing God's purposes for now, to bring himself glory. So Satan, all of his pain, all the evil that he does is serving in the end to to magnify God, to make him look as big as he really is, to to talk about God's wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy, and all the other aspects of God, his patience. And even in the end, we're going to see the wrath of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't know all those things to its fullest without Satan. It's like reading a good story. Every good story has to have have some, some, some evil conquered in it, doesn't it? It's often that way, isn't it? You've got to have something evil that's conquered in, in these good stories that we often love, and it's that way in the Bible too. God is glorified through some, some evil sometimes. So how should you and I relate to evil then? How should you and I relate to evil? Well, if, if you just looked at a concordance or a topical Bible or something like that, you'd find the Bible has a lot to say about evil. 
So let me just quickly go through these. I'll leave the scriptures to kind of explain themselves for you here, okay? Uh, this is an important question, though. How should we relate to evil? How should we think and feel and, and act about Satan? What about the evil that you're confronting in your life this last week? or you, what, what, you, what about the evil you're going to confront this week or next year? What about that evil? What do, you, what do you do with that? Well, the Bible gives us eight things to do with evil. Number one, expect it. Expect evil. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So, My friends, do you expect evil in your life? Uh, if you don't, you're going to be sorely disappointed then, aren't you? If you go through life thinking, you know, everything's going to be good, you know, I'm still in Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> Wake up! Hello! Anybody home? You're not in Genesis 1 and 2, my friends. <laughs> You're in Genesis 3. So expect it. Number two, endure evil. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Endure. Don't give up. Don't give up. Know that the, the end does come right. There is light at the end of the tunnel that you can't endure. God's going to give you the strength to do so. In fact, I love, uh, what is it, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13. It talks about that, that God is going to give you the way of escape so that you can endure it. Number three, give thanks for the refining effect of evil that comes against you. Evil has a purpose in your life. It refines you. Here's what the Bible says. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, it, notice the Bible says give thanks always and for everything. You don't have to like it to give thanks for it. But God says you're to give thanks. That is the will of God. Number four, hate evil. Hate evil. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You're to abhor it. You are to hate evil. Yes, God is accomplishing his purposes, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to love it and embrace it and pat it on the back and say, good job. You know, good boy. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not how we treat evil. We hate it. Number five, pray for for escape from evil. Don't, don't be one of these weird people, well, God's accomplishing his purposes through evil, so I'm not going to pray. No, God tells us to pray in Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the model prayer that Jesus gave us. So pray for escape from evil. Number six, expose evil. Expose it. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Uh, we often do the first part, by the way, of Ephesians 5.11 there. You know, we, we kind of separate ourselves from evil, you know, when our workmates are taking the Lord's name in vain and they're doing their, their you know, they go and have their drunk parties or things. We, we separate from that, right? Or, or other things we see happening around us. We, we'll, we'll, we'll separate from that. We, we take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but do you do the last part? Do you expose it? Do you? 
God says we're supposed to do that as well. Expose the evil. Number seven, overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. And the last one, number eight, resist evil. Resist evil. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible says you're to resist him. You are to resist him, and he will flee from you. So there are there's eight things that you are to do with evil. But now let me just quickly end by showing you four things you are never to do. There's four things the Bible mentions you're never to do uh, in regards to evil. Number one, never despair. Never despair that this evil world is out of God's control. Never, not for one moment, think that God has lost control of his universe. Because he hasn't. In fact, Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you really believe that? God works all things? All things? So even when you get cancer, when you get cancer, are you going to believe this? That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you believe that? Uh, what, what about if, uh, let, let's say, uh, through the recession, you lost your house. You couldn't pay the mortgage. You lost your house. It's really God's house, by the way. Do you believe God works all things according to the counsel of his will? Or if somebody in your family dies, do you really believe God works all things according to the counsel of his will? Do you, do you really believe that? I mean, it's easy for us to sit in our ivory towers when everything's going well, yeah, I believe Ephesians 1.11. And then some evil takes place. And No, no, God didn't do that. No, no, he wasn't. That wasn't according to the counsel of his will. Be careful, my friends. God says everything is being worked out according to the counsel of his will. So never despair that God has uh, somehow lost control of the universe because he hasn't. Number two... Never give in, never give in to the sense that because of random evil light, or, or be, let me put it this way, just never give in, okay? That's the way I, I said it, but never give in, okay? Life is not meaningless, life is not absurd, life is, uh, in fact, uh, life is not random. Life, there's, there, there is no such thing as luck, there is no such thing as accidents. In fact, look what Romans 11 says. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. So never despair, never give in, and three, never yield. Never yield to the thought that God sins. That's what you're not to yield to. God's not the author of sin. He's not the one who, who created sin. He permits it, yes, but he doesn't create it. In fact, Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And number four, the last one, never doubt. What are you not to doubt? Don't, don't doubt that God is totally for you. Do you believe that God is totally for you? Don't doubt that for one moment, because he is. He is totally for you. And so if you trust him with your life, the Bible says you are in Christ Jesus so never doubt that all the evil that, that, that come, has come upon you, is coming upon you, and will come upon you, 
is is some somehow you know that God is doing some uh, mean thing to you. That God is not loving. He's not good. No, God is loving. God is good. God is kind. He's using these things in your life for various purposes, whether that's purifying you or whatever. Uh, in fact, look what uh, Hebrews 12, verse 6 says. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you believe that? That's, that's not nice going through that, though, is it? That's hard. Uh, you know, as, as parents, we don't like disciplining and chastising our children. And I'm sure our children don't like being chastised and disciplined. And when you were growing up, you didn't like being chastised and disciplined at, when you were a child, did you? That's not nice. But the Bible talks about that yielding the, 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 the works of righteousness in our life. It, it's accomplishing God's purposes. So it's not an expression of his punishment in wrath. God is using these things that sometimes are uncomfortable, things that we may not like, even evil, to accomplish his purposes. He loves us while those things are happening. So never doubt God's love. Never doubt God's goodness in the midst of an evil world. So when we reject here the the designs of the devil and we're trusting in God, what are we doing? We're fulfilling God's purpose as Satan continues to live on this planet. We're fulfilling God's purpose. Satan is alive, and he's a well. But he's only alive because he is serving God's purposes. God could destroy him now if he wants to, but he doesn't because Satan is glorifying God, and when he is done glorifying God, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, we glorify the infinitely superior worth of Jesus as we trust in God as we go through evil. So my friends, trust in the God who reigns supreme over his creation. Even in the midst of your trials and your suffering and the evil, continue to trust in a good and a loving God and a supreme and sovereign God. So I'm inviting you to trust him, to stand in awe of this kind of a God, the God who saves us and defeats Satan. Let's pray.